0: You know, I, uh, I, I read something from somebody, I don't know who he is, but he made a statement and uh, he was talking about how he lives in California and he visited this small church and he made this statement, he says, I, I went to this town and I visited this small church and he, he simply said this right after that, he said, they didn't have all the stuff, but Jesus was there. And it's such a simple statement, but it so ministered to my heart uh, for somebody to recognize that the presence of God was in the place, though they didn't have all the things that you might necessarily need to feel comfortable or feel as though our emotions are set in place. Um, we need Jesus. We need His Word. And we're going to pray one more time as we continue in this series in the book of Revelation. So please turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. As you turn there, we will pray. Father, this is your word. We tremble at your word this morning. We pray that you would speak to your people. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide every word to be free from error, to be sound, and to carry the power that it does have to change our lives. Lord, we choose not to be distracted. We choose to give you our attention, and we pray for your anointing. We pray for your power. We pray that you would do what only you can do in this place. And so, Lord, we come before you in reverence as we open your word and as we read in your name we pray. Amen. Here we are in the book of Revelations, chapter 3, verse 1, down to verse 6. We are coming to a close end for these different churches that we've been reading about. Learning about what Christ is looking for in a church. Learning for what Christ is looking for in his own people. and So we read here in verse 1, down to verse 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and i will never blot his name out of the book of life i will confess his name before my father and before his angels he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches once again we have to understand that in every letter that jesus writes to these churches he gives a specific introduction That is coming from Revelations chapter 1. In the vision that John had concerning the Son of Man. And so Jesus does not choose these references by accident. But they are tailor made for each church concerning their situation. And so we see here that Jesus chooses to reveal himself to this church. As the one who what? Has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now we know from the first or the second message of this series, that when we discuss the seven spirits of God, this was actually in the introductory message, we know that, quite possibly, John is going all the way back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, which declares the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. And even that number is significant, that number seven is not random, it's to speak of the completeness of something, and so when he's saying the seven spirits, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, but the completeness and the complexity of his ministry. Isaiah chapter eleven two lists off the sevenfold ministries of the Holy Spirit, does he not? The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. And even in Revelation chapter 1, the seven spirits of God are before the throne. And we know that they are before the throne because the Father is on the throne. And Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And it is they who commission the Holy Spirit to work in his ministries throughout the earth. And this is confirmed in Revelation chapter 5 verse 6. And you can read it with me. Where it says, and between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So he carries the the mission, whatever the Father, the Son, command of the Spirit, he goes forth and he does what he needs to do, what the Holy Spirit can only do. But we have to understand as well that the Holy Spirit has a specific role within the church. That the Holy Spirit has a specific role within the church. If you turn with me to Revelation 4-5, this is an interesting insight. We see another perspective of the Holy Spirit in Revelation 4-5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. Now, we got to make the connection here. If we, up to this point, have agreed that the church is what? What is the church represented as, as a symbol in the book of Revelation, the first few chapters? As a what? As a lampstand. It carries the light. It is the, the thing that projects light, but it is not the light. We are jars of clay that have the treasure within us. So we are the lamp stands, but the Holy Spirit is the fire. The Holy Spirit is the thing that provides the light in the church. The Holy Spirit is, the, is the, the fire of the church. And we know, naturally speaking, what fire is. It provides light. It provides warmth. It is a source of generating power. It has a purifying effect on the elements that find themselves in the fire. It also attracts people, does it not? When there's a fire, it tends to bring people. When something's on fire, people run to it and they just want to watch it burn. And we know that the Holy Spirit is referenced as fire in more than one place. In Acts 2, we know that tongues of fire, as a fire appeared on the heads, above the heads of those that were sitting in the upper room. We also know in Ephesians 4.30, in that verse that says, do not quench the Spirit. But when we look at the Greek of that, it can be translated as, do not extinguish the fire of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, in Revelation chapter 3, introduces himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God. He is the one who is the provider of the Holy Spirit. He is the one that commissions the Holy Spirit. He is the one that carries the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and is the one who instructs him to do what he needs to do in the church. Is that not the ministry of the Holy Spirit? One of them at least to glorify Christ? And so he's saying this on purpose now, but we got to look at the second part as well. He's saying that he is also the one who holds the seven stars in his hands. And we've come to the conclusion to believe amongst many interpretations that the seven stars represent the seven messengers of these churches the pastors, the leaders, the elders of these churches because of the original word messenger. And we see, I know your works, but why is he introducing himself as such before he even instructs them? He says, I have the seven spirits and I have the seven stars. And what he's saying there, when he's saying I have the seven stars for the sake of review, he's saying, that he controls the ministers, that he's in authority of the ministers, anything that you have in your hand, the person that is holding that specific object is in control. He also protects the ministers that they choose to serve him faithfully and to obey him faithfully. He will place them where he needs to place them, he will protect them as he needs to protect them, but he also is sovereign and he will remove who he needs to remove and place who he needs to place. The Lord is in charge of his ministers, he is the chief shepherd. And so we have to ask the question again, Why is Jesus introducing himself this way to this church? Why is he introducing himself as the one who has the seven spirits and the one who holds the seven stars, whose main responsibility is to project the light of the word of God? The seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit, ministers in his right hand. Why? Because it seems as though that these are the two elements that are missing in this church. The reason why Jesus introduces himself as such is because it is evident that this is what the church is missing. There is an absence of the working of the Holy Spirit and there is an absence of faithful leaders whose main responsibility is to proclaim the truths of the word of God. So, Jesus is not coming, though, like he did in, in some of the other churches with eyes of fire and feet as burnished bronze. He is coming in a way where he is encouraging them in a way. Because this church is known as the spiritually dead church. And what Jesus is doing right off the get go is he is trying to let them know that though they are a dead church, he has the power to revive them again. He has the Spirit of God, he's the one who can send the Spirit in such a way where he revives what has been brought to death. And that's exactly what we're dealing with in this church. He has the seven spirits, and he has the pastors, the ministers in his hand. He's in control. He is sovereign over them. And he's speaking to a dead church. Now, I want to say something here. Because there might be a reason with that insight why this church is dead. There is a general rule in understanding this. Here's the general rule. It's not always the case, but this is the general rule. As the pastor is, so will the church be. Jesus, and some people believe, Jesus is indicating that one of the main reasons why this church could be dead is because the pastor, the leader is spiritually dead. The leaders of the church are spiritually dead. And that's the general rule. As the pastor, as the leader of the flock is, so will the flock be. If the pastor, the leader, does not want to pray and does not have a prayer life, what makes you think that people will have a prayer life or want to pray? If he does not uphold the word of God as the final authority of his life, of his ministry, of how we conduct ourselves, why would the people uphold the word of God? If he is not stirred for the loss, if he is not stirred for the people to be active in ministry and he himself is not, why would the people be? It only makes sense, does it not? And that is the general rule. It's not always the case. There are some situations where there are faithful people out there that are dealing with just hard-headed individuals. But the general rule is that, and that is backed up biblically. If you think in the Old Testament of the book of Haggai, the entire nation of Israel has gone into a place of complacency. They were threatened by persecution. They were threatened by others, and so they stopped building the temple of the Lord, which needed to be rebuilt because they were in exile for so long. And one of the first things they needed to do was to build and rebuild the temple. And they were on their way and because of persecution, because of threats, because of different circumstances. They stopped building the temple of the Lord. They put a pause on working on the house of God. And so what does God do? He sends a prophet. And the prophet comes in Haggai chapter 1 and he looks at his people and he says, I don't understand you. Uh, You're working and paneling your houses and you've neglected the house of God. How did this happen? Get back to the place where you put God's house as number one of your lives. Now is not the time to relax. Now is not the time to just go easy. Now is the time to work. But there's a subtle insight in Haggai that is so crucial and it's in verse 14. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it in Haggai 1.14. Let me just read it to you. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of the host, of hosts rather, their God. Haggai 1.14. You guys catch that? What did God do? Because there's a sequence there. He stirred up the spirits of the leaders first, and then the spirits of the people. He stirred up the spirits of the leaders first, and then He stirred the spirits of the people. If the leaders are not stirred concerning the house of God, The people will not be stirred concerning the house of God. If the leaders are not stirred to seek God for revival, why in the world would the people be stirred for revival? God did this on purpose by revealing this in Haggai, that he stirred the, the spirits of the leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and then he stirred the spirits of the remnant. And if that's not convincing, just read 1 Kings and 2 Kings and see... That whenever a king of Judah or Israel was raised and he was wicked, the people would follow suit. And whenever a king got up and he was righteous and he brought reform to the word of God and to how we ought to obey, the people followed suit. If the king destroyed the Asher poles, if the king destroyed the temples of Baal, the people followed. And so there's a tremendous responsibility upon leaders. And so what does that mean for those who are not leaders? Pray for your leaders. Pray for your leaders. It's so much easier to criticize people than pray for them, is it not? We are so quick to criticize. But if God, who is sovereign in placing people in specific places, let's pray for them. There's a war after leaders because if the enemy can get the leaders, he gets the flock. He strikes the shepherd, he he strikes the sheep. The sheep are scattered. So Christ is saying something here and he continues In verse 1, in the second part, he says, I know your works. I know your works. But he doesn't list any of them. You see that? When he says, I know your works, some of the other churches, he, he tends to list the works. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You have the reputation of being alive. So... We have to be careful here. This church is not not doing anything. This church is busy. This church is active. They have their calendar filled up with activities. They have things going on. In fact, they were convinced probably, and those outside of the church were convinced, this is an active church. This is a church that's alive. This is a church that's doing stuff. But Jesus sees it completely differently. Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead. This is striking. He says, you have the reputation, and I see the things that you're doing, but he does not commend any of these things. What seems to be considered alive in the eyes of men is seen as dead in the eyes of Christ. But how? There's activity. There are things happening in this church. He says, I know your works. But here's the thing. The question we need to ask is, though there might be activity, is it spiritual activity? Is it what Christ wants them to do? Are they busying themselves with what God has instructed in his word? That's the ultimate question. He says, I know your works. He doesn't commend the works. He says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. So then we have to ask another question. What is the evidence that a church is alive? This is very important for us to understand because we can busy ourselves with things and we can assume that we are alive and people can assume that we are alive, but in Christ's eyes, we're actually dead. So we can have activity, but is it spiritual activity? And that begs the question, if, if we can busy ourselves and still be considered spiritually dead, then how do we know that what we're doing assures us that we are alive spiritually, as a church, as a people? Well, we don't have to guess, do we? We don't have to guess. The blueprint I believe, amongst other places in the scripture, I believe one of the blueprints of seeing the church alive is in the book of Acts. And so turn your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And we're going to read what is to be believed the blueprint of a church that is active and alive. Remember, we're not asking the question, is the church active? There are many places that are active, but are not spiritually active. There are many places that have things going on and are going with emotions and their calendars are full and they have different things that you can do different days of the week. But concerning Christ's standard, it can be absolute death. Look at Acts 2.42 with me here. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Does that look like an alive church to you? I don't think you need to be a scholar to see that it's an alive church. It looks like a church that's alive. But look at the elements here. Though there are many other elements in Scripture, this is a good place that holds a majority of the things that signify that this church or a church is alive. Primarily, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The Word of God was proclaimed. The Word of God was taught. It was held as a priority. People came together to hear what God's words has to say. There was teaching in verse 42. There was also Christ-like fellowship. Christ-like fellowship. Edifying one another. Sharpening one another. Ministering with one another. But it wasn't just Sunday morning fellowship. That's the idea we get. Oh, we're coming together for fellowship. Look at verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were in each other's business. This is how how the book of Acts worked, the church and the early church. If anybody had need, people would sell their own possessions to provide the needs of others. This is so foreign to us. If a brother or sister is in great need, they would rally together and say, Okay, what can you sell? What can I sell? let's provide for our brother, let's provide for our sister. That was how they had fellowship. That's how they were involved in each other's lives. It says that they also met day by day, attending to the temple and in their homes. The church was intended to do life together. We don't just come in here, have fellowship for an hour and a half and go home and just live our lives. No. Hey, we come to the temple, I'll see you at home later on tonight. They did life together. They ate at each other's homes. And that's the next part. They broke bread. And this is more than just the Lord's Supper. They ate together. There's something about eating. Christ really exalts the fact that we eat. I mean, when we see him, there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. We're eating. We're going to sit at a table. And we should do so now. There's something about eating together. That fellowship that conversation. They broke bread and they prayed. Prayers. There's a plural here. There was continuous prayer. Prayer meetings. Praying in homes. Praying in church services. Praying, praying, praying. They operated. That was the very fuel of how they were influenced and influencing others. Prayers. Do we see this? But there's more. There was unity. Verse 44. Once again, they gave things to one another. They were one body, literally. They operated that way. The hand is hurting. We're all hurting. The foot is hurting. We're all hurting. So there was this unity. And we look at verse 47. There were souls being saved. There were souls being saved. Look what it says here. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so this implies something. This implies, it does not say that they were just sitting around and just the Lord brought people to the church. This implies active evangelism. This implies them going out and proclaiming the gospel and meeting the needs of others. This implies discipleship. This implies frequent baptisms. And so we have to look and say, okay, this is what the blueprint of the church looked like. This is what the Word of God has been presented to us concerning what the early church operated as. But then we come back to Revelation chapter 3 in the church of Sardis and we see that they're active. But they're not spiritually active. They're not engaging in the things that Christ wants them to engage in. Is that possible in our day? Can you just do stuff and not be doing what Christ wants you to do? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we have to evaluate it that way, do we not? What's the prayer meeting look like in this church? What does evangelism look like in this church? What does fellowship look like in this church? What does teaching look like in this church? That is how we measure the spiritual temperature of a local body. And there are other places to look at. There are other factors to consider. This is just one snapshot of what we should consider concerning a body that is truly alive spiritually. So you can have the programs, but those programs are not geared for for Christ. You can have events, you can have activities, but they're meaningless. It's empty, it's not, it's religious, it's just formality. It's just noise, it's just useless activity. It does not line up with what the book of Acts, with the, the, the epistles have given us concerning what we ought to be busy with in the church. I know your works. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And so that understanding of reputation could also imply this, which is even scarier. The idea of reputation is that at one time, they were spiritually active. At one time, they were spiritually active as a church. But over time, They died spiritually. So this church, quite possibly, could also have been glorifying the good old days. They had a monument, maybe. They had a reputation. They had a history of how God has moved. And they kind of just celebrated what God has done in the past. But it's a very dangerous thing for us to say, Do you remember when God did this? And not be saying, Look what God is doing now. That's a very dangerous thing. Remember when God did those things back in the day and not be saying, Yes, God did those things, but look what God is doing now in our midst. and Not just on a corporate level, but on an individual level. Remember when God did those things in my life? Oh, I remember when God was like, Oh, He was so real to me. But He's not doing things in you now. We tend to do that to celebrate a monument. To look back and say, well, look at that and stay in a place of complacency and not realizing we're actually dying spiritually because we're looking back and we're just kind of surviving on what was given and what we lived back then. That's dangerous. That was dangerous for this church. That's what they were doing. They had a reputation. At one point, this church was spiritually active, but they just found themselves going through the motions and just kind of relying on their reputation. Oh, they could have been fooling everybody. They could have been fooling everybody. But how did they come to this place of spiritual deadness? Well, it tells us in verse 2, Wake up. You know what that means? It means they fell asleep. Somewhere along the line, they fell asleep. And this is a jab to the people of Sardis because of its historical context. Very briefly, Sardis glorified in their... Natural fortification they were elevated above ground level and they had these hills and mountains that were so hard to climb by the enemy So they kind of glorified in the fact that they had this Fortification that protected them very well for a long time. They did fool the enemy they did Intimidate the enemy that they could not be penetrated by any forces because of these fortifications That they built upon and that were there naturally these mountains and these hills that were high hard to climb but over time the people of Sardis, not the Christians, we're talking about the people of Sardis, became confident. Overly confident. How so? They boasted in the fact that they had these natural fortifications, they had these things, and so they really eased off in surveillance, they really eased off on making sure that the enemy was not coming close because they just boasted in the fact that they had these things, that they were strong. And so you know what happened? These soldiers that would be over the gates and these hills. They weren't taking their job seriously anymore. So you know what they did? Thank you so much. See, he's awake. He notices things and so. So you know what they did? These soldiers would just fall asleep on duty. They would take breaks. They were not doing what they were called to do. They were clumsy in their work. And so eventually, because these soldiers were clumsy, they were not realizing the enemy was watching them, they revealed by their clumsiness, by dropping things down the hills and walking down the hills and coming back up, and the enemy was watching saying, oh, there is a way to climb that wall. There is a way to get into that place. And so not once, but twice, because of the soldiers falling asleep on duty, the soldiers being clumsy in their work. Enemies have taken over Sardis. They penetrated. They found the way, the secret ways up those hills, and they got in and they they destroyed the people. And so they would have known their history. And Jesus is saying something that would have hit the nail on the head. Wake up, people of Sardis. You know what your people have been through, and it's happening to you spiritually you've fallen asleep. Like the soldiers that have fallen asleep in Sardis, inviting death into their land. The people of the church of Sardis have fell asleep and literally invited death. So he says, wake up. You're asleep. Falling asleep is a form of carelessness. When we become careless, you fall. when you fall asleep, when you're supposed to be doing something, you're careless, is it not? It's careless to fall asleep. And who knows? Did the leaders fall asleep first and then the people fell asleep? We don't know what happened. But these people fell asleep on the job. When they were supposed to be active in spiritual activities, they let loose. They became careless and they got busy with things that didn't matter anymore. And that's the next point. Falling asleep is a form of inactivity. They stopped being active in the things that they needed to be active in. Do you realize something about this letter? It's so subtle. Jesus does not mention persecution. He does not mention how there are these Jews that are persecuting or how they're going to be thrown into prison or how they are enduring patiently. He doesn't mention any persecution in this letter. They have so been inactive that they aren't even doing anything that would merit persecution. They were so blended with the culture, they were so just doing the things that they were doing, that they weren't even doing anything to deserve persecution. They were so inactive in the things of God, that Satan didn't even find them worthy to persecute. He said, God, that church is asleep. Why would the devil bother with a sleeping church? They're asleep. He's gonna go find the ones that are active. He's gonna put a target on the ones that are praying, and the ones that are going on and the ones that are fellowshipping, the ones that are holding up to the Word of God. He's gonna go after them. Here's Sardis. There's no mention of persecution. They ain't doing anything to deserve persecution. So the enemy just walks by that church and says, whatever. No need to bother. They fell asleep. So what does he say? He's a strength in what remains and is about to die. There was a little life left in some form of spiritual activity, but it was dying. Teaching was dying. The prayer meeting was dying. Evangelism was dying. Whatever it may be, whatever we would categorize through the scriptures as spiritual activity, it was dying. There was still a little bit of life left. And Christ is urging them, put it back to where it needs to be feed it again, uphold it again. I remember growing up back in Canada, my father planted this beautiful cherry tree in our backyard. It was a beautiful tree, but it needed much attention. And this tree would would be out there with its big leaves and it would have these small little red dots, the cherries. But we had to, we, he had to, we were asleep. <laughs> he would he would trim the branches, he would water it, he needed much water, kind on of a consistent basis. And not only that, he needed to protect the tree because the birds would love to feed on those cherries. And so there was much attention that needed to be brought to this tree. But one summer, I can't recall which one exactly, we just got busy as a family, including himself. And for a few months that tree was neglected. We only have one tree, it was neglected. And we saw this tree and the branches were sticking out. It was very awkward looking. It looked kind of yellowish. And worst of all, there was no cherries. There was pits all over around the tree because the birds came and they ate literally all the cherries. They had a buffet. Nobody was there to protect it. And so having some free time or you know, noticing the urgency of the moment... My dad calls the boys says we got to take care of the tree. Get off the couch. Get in the backyard. And what do we do? We spend so much time trimming that tree. Removing the things that did not need to be there. Dead branches, excessive branches, watering it, and making sure that from that moment on we would be more conscious of the prey, the enemy, the birds stealing the fruit. It was still there. That tree was still there, but it was not beautiful. It was ugly. There was no fruit to give. There was no life to give. It was just there. had a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And with the little life that it did have, it was up to us to feed it again or to leave it as it was. Church of Sardis, strengthen what remains. Whatever life is left, and whatever form of spiritual activity there is, recognize it, and feed it again. And I think as a church, we need to continually be in that place. We need to evaluate the different things in the church. What does our prayer life look like in the church? Are we actively going out? Are we walking in unity? Are we growing in love for one another? Are we fellowshipping, or are we too busy to even do what Christ commands us to do, to fellowship with one another, to eat bread together? Or are we just doing life? We need to look and evaluate on a continuous basis and realize that we must strengthen what remains if there are things dying. He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Then he gives a striking warning. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. In other words, he's saying that what you are doing in this local church is not meeting the standard of my word. And we have his word. We don't have to guess what he wants from us. We have it already. We've been saying that for the past five, six weeks. This word is the blueprint in which we operate as a church. So what does he say in verse 3? Remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. This is frightening. Because this, this is the evidence of how they fell asleep in the first place. The Word of God was open at one point. The Word of God was proclaimed at one point. And guess what? Somebody shut the book. We will not see spiritual activity if this book is closed. Never. And if what we're doing is not lined up to this Word, it could be activity, but it's not Christ-honoring and it's not spiritual. You know what Paul t- told Timothy in 1 Timothy? He told him in 1 Timothy 1.13, follow the pattern of... ...of the sound words that you have heard from me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. This is the pattern. The Word of God is the pattern. This, as long as we follow this, we're safe. We will prosper spiritually. We will walk in the will of God. But the moment we begin to be tempted to do things that are attractive... That don't require much from us. That seem to attract more people. But it's carnal. Is a moment where we are withholding ourselves from receiving the life from the word of God. 2 Timothy 1.13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. He says, remember what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Get back to the word of God turn away from everything that is useless, that does not line up with the scriptures, that is wasting your time, and get back to this book. Then he gives a warning in the second part of verse 3. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know it. At what hour I will come against you? If you will not wake up, this church is slept in bed, and here is Christ saying, get out of bed. And you have a choice now. If you're not going to get out of bed, I will come as a thief at a time where you will not expect, and I will come against you. This is interesting. If you tonight, brother or sister, if you tonight knew, you knew somehow, way that somebody was going to come to your house and break in, would you go to sleep? Would you go to sleep soundly to know that somebody was coming into your house sometime during the night to break in? Would you go to sleep? No. It would be foolish to go to sleep. And that is true in the parallel level in the spirit. That if we believe that Christ is coming back one day, at a time that we do not know, how dare we fall asleep spiritually? It's just foolish. We do not want Christ to find us sleeping. We want Christ to find us expecting Him. How beautiful will it be when Christ finds us doing His work, active. It says in Luke 12, Blessed are the servants whom the Master finds awake when He comes. Blessed are the servants whom He finds awake when He comes. The servants... We want to be found awake because at any time he can come back. And if we live with that consciousness that just like a thief can come into our house at any time, we need to be aware of that reality. If we really knew that a thief was coming, not even tonight, if you knew sometime this week and you did not know the day which that thief was coming, would you dare go to bed? Would you not be, a, maybe you would partner with somebody and do a cycle? You sleep these amount, I'll sleep this. In the same manner, Christ is coming back at any time. We can't, Afford to fall asleep spiritually. The master wants to find his servants awake. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Look at verse 4. You have still a few names in Sardis people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. For they are worthy. There are some people in the church. Though it is a dead church. That are alive. But this verse also offers another layer. To this complex understanding of this dead church. Jesus is saying there are people in the church. That have not soiled their garments. Christ. As we've just been reading, based on this understanding, is not only speaking to those who are spiritually asleep and are believers, but he's also speaking to those within the church that think they're saved but are not, that are just going through the religious motions, that are actually doing things but are not even saved. And so this church has come to a state of such spiritual deadness. That yes, there were believers that were spiritually dead. There were believers that have gone to a place of being spiritually asleep. But within that frame of time, there are also people who have come that are not even saved, but are just going through the religious motions. So those warnings that we just read in the first three verses, those are targeted towards believers who are spiritually asleep. But also, it's a frightening warning to those who are sitting in the assembly that are not even saved. that are just going through the motions. And so, yes, for the believer, we do not want the thief to come in the night and we do not expect him. We don't want Christ to find us asleep as his his people. But when this letter was being read to the church of Sardis, this would have been a striking and fearful warning to those who are not even saved. The thief is going to come one night. And you, if you're not saved, he's going to come against you. Do you see that? There are two audiences here. So we have the believers who fell asleep spiritually. We have those who have blended in that think that they're actually saved, that they have the appearance of godliness, but deny the power and they're just going through the motions. And if the word of God is not being proclaimed, if there's no prayer, if there's no godly fellowship, if the, if the teaching of the scriptures are not faithfully shared, of course there's going to be a blend of people. Of course people are going to come in and have a form of godliness going through the traditions. But then in verse 4, there's also this small, this small remnant of those who have not soiled their garments. And garments speaks of characters. It speaks of our life. It speaks of who we are as people. And so these people, those who have fallen asleep spiritually, and those who are in there that are not truly believers, but have an appearance of godliness, you know what happens when you fall asleep spiritually? You don't care what happens to your garment. If we're not spiritually active, Sin creeps in. That's just the, that's the process. And so we, we dirty ourselves with a lifestyle or habits that we pick up because we're not spiritually engaged. And that's why an assembly, a local body can have all this activity, but people living for the world and living in the world. It's a scary reality, it's a frightening reality, it's terrifying. But there are those even within that place. For some reason, they have not left this dead church. They felt as though they needed to stay, or maybe this was the only church in Sardis. They have not soiled their garments. They have kept themselves pure. They are true believers, and this is what Christ is saying to the believers of the church, those who are truly saved. He's encouraging them. And as this letter is being read to the church, not only is he encouraging the believers, he's also... Convicting those who might think that they're saved, but are not. And so he says here, They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Are they worthy based on the fact that they've kept their own garments clean? Are they worthy because they, have, they compared to the spiritually dead church, are obviously more alive and more religious and more pious? No. We are only worthy because Jesus has made us worthy. Only worthy because Christ has made us worthy. When we speak of white garments in the scriptures, it speaks of redemption. It always speaks of redemption. Do you recall in Zechariah when Joshua the high priest is standing before the Lord in his filthy garments and Satan comes and accuses him and the Lord says, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. And he commands the angels to remove that filthy garment off of him. And to put on a clean garment with a clean turban. That is the gospel. That in our shame and in our filth and all the sin that we've picked up in our lives. We come to Christ and say, I recognize my filthiness. I recognize the things that are on me that I've adapted and I've put into me. And I'm asking that you clean me, God. Cleanse me. I need your righteousness. I need you to put your white garment on me. That is the great exchange that his righteousness is imputed unto us and our sin is imputed unto him on the cross. And we are only made worthy because Jesus makes us worthy. Those white garments speak of redemption. And these people, not only these people, but anybody who is in Christ is only worthy because Christ makes them worthy. And here's the reward for those who are truly saved. For those who are truly saved, he says, The one who conquers, in verse 5, will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Once again, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. There's a future tense here that one day we will be clothed by Christ. There is a white garment for us. Speaking of purity and holiness when we stand before Jesus. Speaking of the redemption. It's a symbol of our redemption. Because of the gospel. But also, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. When the disciples came by Jesus in Luke chapter 10 after casting out devils, after coming back from their missions trip, it says that they came with joy saying, Lord, the spirits are submitted to us because of your name. And Jesus says, yeah, well, I saw Satan fall down like lightning. Let me tell you something, disciples. Don't rejoice in your ministry. Rejoice in the fact that your names are written in heaven. I really wonder if we've heard that so much that we've lost the awesomeness of that reality. That our names are written in heaven. Your name has been given to you and your name is written in heaven. And when you stand before the judgment, if you put your faith in Christ Jesus, your name will be read. Your name, your specific tailored name will be read in the Lamb's book of life. Imagine that reality. When Christ We'll read those who are found in the book of life and will proclaim those who have not been found in the book of life. Your name, if you're a true believer in Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, is recorded forever. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Have we become so churchanized Brothers and sisters, that we've lost the sense of wonder and awesomeness of that reality? Have we become so familiar with these promises that they don't even make our hearts rejoice anymore? That there is a day coming that if you confess your sins to Christ, He will confess you before the Father? That if you have acknowledged Jesus Christ in this life, Jesus Christ will acknowledge you before the Father? that when you and I step into glory, not knowing how this will play out, but I'd like to imagine that Christ will be there, and we will be approaching the throne of God, and the the holiness and the majesty being so powerful that if we were to be in our physical frame, we would disintegrate in a moment. And here's the God of the universe. And We look at the prophets and we see how they reacted when they saw God. How much more do you think you and I will react? But then Christ stands and he says, Father, he's with me. Father, Evan is with me. Father, Gil is with me. Father, Tamara is with me. Father, Daniel, I confess his name before you. He is with me. And there's the Father, and there are all his angels acknowledging you because Christ has acknowledged you. What an awesome reality that will be. What an awesome experience that will be. When Jesus will confess us before the Father. If we have confessed Christ in this lifetime, He will faithfully confess us before the Father. So, He who has an ear, let Him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Which person are you in this church? In this church, which person are you? Are you the believer that has fallen asleep spiritually? Are you the believer? that have allowed spiritual elements in your life to die or are dying right now? And ask yourself, do I uphold the word of God or is that dying in my life? Am I concerned about intercession and praying and seeking the will of God or is that dying in my life? Am I concerned about meeting with my brothers, encouraging them and being encouraged by them or is that dying in my life? Is that a dying motivation in my life? Am I just doing activity, but it's not spiritual, nor does it line up with the Word of God? Do I have the reputation of being alive, even fooling my brothers and sisters in Christ, but if I were to really line it up with God's Word, I'm not fooling Him? A lot of people do this. A lot of people do this. Even having a reputation at one time in their life, being so zealous for God, And people have known them in that state. But they have drifted from that place. And all they do is hold up that monument and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a history with God. But they're not walking in a present reality with God. Are you that person? Because Christ is saying, wake up. My will for you is not to be asleep. I want you to be awake. I want you to be alert. I want you to be active. Or are you the person who's fooling everybody because of your religious tradition? Are you the person that's blending in with the activities that are going on? And you, you have activities in your life, but really your spirit man is dead and you have not received the born again experience that comes from above. If that's the case, both for the sleeping Christian, the thief will come. Jesus will come one day and he will evaluate the works of our lives but also for the one that is fooling everybody. He will come and he will come against you and it would just been a waste of time trying to prove to everybody else that you have some kind of religious standing. Or maybe you're that believer that is holding on, that has received Christ, that has been truly born again, that have not allowed your garments to be soiled, that have upheld the word of God, upheld prayer, continuing to walk in that reality. Continue to do so, continue to do so. Be encouraged with the reality That you will have your name confessed before the Father. That you will have your name wrung out when it is read in the book of life. That you will be clothed in white garments. Don't be tempted by the things in this world. Don't be tempted by the sense of lukewarmness that has a little bit of the world and a little bit of Christ. It's not worth it. So he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What does this letter have to do with us? That's the ultimate question. Is I praise God I praise God by his grace and mercy that we are alive that we are concerned about these things I love in the book of Acts how it says that they met day by day there is always something happening there is always something on the go and I pray that we would stay in that place I pray that we would not fall asleep I pray that we would continue to remain awake and if somebody on our, in our pew or in our chair is falling asleep, wake them up. Wake them up along the road. We can fall asleep. We have the tendency to do so, but we need one another to wake each other up. That we would continue, guys, to uphold the Word of God. That this book would remain open, this pulpit in your private prayer closet. And that we would not bank on a reputation we might have had from last year or two years ago. We would not bank on a reputation. But that we would evaluate ourselves today. It says, am I growing? Am I staying in that place? For you, I don't know, some people in here. You can't fool God with your religious activity. You know in your heart if you're truly born again. You know if you've truly given your life to Christ and by His Spirit He has given you a new heart. There's no need of fooling people in this world because when you, if you do not receive Christ, end up in eternal hell, it's not going to be very easy to boast how you fool people on earth. What a waste of time. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Cry out to him until he gives you that new heart that you need. Cry out to him to remove that filthy garment. Even your good deeds are filthy to receive the garment of Christ's righteousness what does this letter have to do with us brothers and sisters stay awake evaluate the cherry tree or the other plants in your life and say is this alive in my life or is that dying is this alive in my life or is that dying is this alive in my life or is that dying and if it's dying you will not be able to bring it back to life by your own power or strength. Remember the first verse. He is the one who has the seven spirits. He is the one who has the Holy Spirit. When we recognize that there is something dying in our lives, we cry out to the Spirit of God and say, revive this area of my life. That's why he started it that way. Because if there was something dying in the church, he would offer the life that was needed to bring it back to where it needs to be. He is the source. He is the reviver. He is the life giver. All we have to do is what this Bible says. We have to look, evaluate, acknowledge that this is dying in my life, repent, and when we repent, the life giving Holy Spirit comes and revives that area of our life. That's a glorious hope. That as we walk through this life and maybe things are attacking or things are, are bringing to death, spiritual activity, we can cry out to the Holy Spirit and He's faithful to revive that area of our lives. Rely on that joy. Rely on that hope. And here's the reality. That the Holy Spirit was active in that church at one point. But somewhere along the line, they grieved the Holy Spirit. They grieved the Holy Spirit. And we don't want to do that in this place, do we? Guys, As we pray in a moment, let us pray to the one who has the seven spirits and to the one who holds the seven stars in his hand. The only hope that we have of this church being alive is as long as we are faithful to this word, he is faithful to give us what we need. And we need a continuous dependency on the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us never, ever, guys, please, 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 You study things and you see things and it terrifies you because so many people are relying on a monument of their ministry. They look back and they say, yeah, we were like this one day. We were like that at one point in our church life. and They just fell asleep. The leader fell asleep. The people fell asleep. Let's not fall asleep. Stay awake. Stay awake. We need to stay awake. There are people counting on the fact that you need to stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. Let's pray.